Welcome to Washington Today on C-SPAN Radio for Thursday, February 15, 2024. A judge in New York says the Donald Trump hush money criminal case will begin as scheduled with jury selection on March 25th. It will be the first time a former U.S. president goes on trial on criminal charges. In Donald Trump's election interference case in Fulton County, Georgia, the district attorney, Fonnie Willis, testifies in a hearing accusing her of misconduct by misusing public money in a personal relationship with a special prosecutor in the case. She says outright the attorney for a defendant who brought the allegations is lying. U.S. House of Representatives passing a bill to undo President Joe Biden's pause on liquefied natural gas export permits. A pause the president says is necessary to study the economic and environmental impact of LNG exports. The IRS Commissioner Daniel Werfel tells a House committee that it will be able to handle changes to the earned income tax credit that the House has passed and the Senate is considering, and it applies to the current tax filing season. That's if the bill makes it through the Senate and becomes law. The NATO Secretary General Jan Stoltenberg asked about former President Trump's comment, which he doubled down on today, saying the U.S. should not defend a NATO country against Russia if that country is not meeting its defense spending obligations. And former Ambassador to Afghanistan Zalmay Khalilzad testifies to a House committee about the U.S. withdrawal and the Taliban takeover in the summer of 2021 and how it relates to the Doha Agreement a year earlier that said the U.S. would pull out in exchange for a halt in Taliban attacks. Story from CBS News, the first criminal trial against a former president in U.S. history will begin on March 25th with jury selection in the Manhattan District Attorney's case against Donald Trump. A New York judge ruled Thursday denying Trump's bid to dismiss the charges against him. Trump attended a pretrial hearing Thursday in the case, which involves the circumstances surrounding a payment to adult film star Stormy Daniels in 2016. A grand jury voted to indict Trump on March 30, 2023, charging him with 34 felony counts of falsification of business records. Trump has denied wrongdoing and pleaded not guilty. He has repeatedly accused Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg of pursuing the case for political gain. That was from CBS News. After the hearing, Donald Trump spoke to reporters outside the courtroom. So instead of being in South Carolina and other states, campaigning. I'm stuck here. It's an election interference case. Uh, Nobody's ever seen anything like it in this country. It's a disgrace. It's a disgraceful situation, actually. And we'll just have to figure it out. I'll be here during the day and I'll be campaigning during the night. Uh, Biden should be doing the same thing, but he'll be sleeping. This is all from the DOJ. This all comes out of Washington. They're coordinated with the district attorney and the AG. The case tomorrow, which is a rigged deal, is uh, all coordinated with the uh, district attorney and it's coordinated with the attorney general of New York, Letitia James. Who ought to be ashamed of herself. She's campaigned for years of trying to get Trump without knowing anything about me. It's all a rigged. It's a rigged state. It's a rigged city. It's a shame. They ought to, what they ought to do is go out and take care of the violent crime and the migrant crime that's destroying people and killing people. Not a case that everybody says, you take a look at the legal documents and the legal scholars writing about this. They say there's no crime. This is no crime. But outside, right outside that courthouse, this courthouse, people are being murdered. So it's a very unfair situation. They want to keep me nice and busy so I can't campaign so hard. 
But maybe we won't have to campaign so hard because the other side is incompetent. The other side's done a horrible job running this country. They've done a horrible job at the border. You take a look at New York with the hundreds of thousands of people pouring in from other countries all over the world. You just take a look at what's happening. And I'm going to have to sit here for months on a trial. I think it's ridiculous. It's unfair. A trial that legal scholars say there's no crime. Former President and 2024 presidential candidate Donald Trump at the courthouse in New York City after the judge set the start of the criminal trial in that hush money case for March 25th. The judge said he made the decision after he spoke with the judge in Donald Trump's federal election interference case in Washington, D.C., which has been delayed as they deal with some issues, including presidential immunity. That's being litigated. The judge in the New York case said he expected the hush money trial to last about six weeks. And former President Trump referring to tomorrow's verdict, that's in the civil fraud trial against the Trump Organization and Donald Trump and members of his family. That's also in New York City. Back to the CBS News article, Donald Trump chose to attend the hearing in New York instead of one in Georgia, where a judge heard evidence related to allegations that District Attorney Fonnie Willis and that case's special prosecutor, Nathan Wade, improperly used public funds while pursuing a romantic relationship. Both have confirmed the relationship but denied any financial conflict. The Georgia case involves accusations that Donald Trump and others conspired in an attempt to thwart 2020 election results in the state. That was reporting from CBS News. Both Nathan Wade and Fonnie Willis testified today. First, Nathan Wade saying Fonnie Willis reimbursed him for the travel costs of the trips they took together. You'll hear from attorney Ashley Merchant pointing out there are no receipts to prove it. Your affidavit, you submitted proof of one flight that she paid for and booked. That's all I'm asking. Correct? With the explanation, yes, ma'am. That's all I needed. Um, you said in the affidavit that you roughly shared travel, though, correct? Yes, ma'am. Okay. So this roughly sharing travel, you're saying she reimbursed you? She did. And where did you deposit the money she reimbursed you? Oh, it was cash. She didn't, she didn't give me any checks. So she paid you cash for her share of all these vacations? Mr. Schaefer, you'll step out if you do that again. Yes, ma'am. Okay. And so all of the vacations that she took, she paid you cash for? Yes, ma'am. And you purchased all of these vacations on your business credit card, correct? Yes, ma'am. And you included those in deductions on your taxes, correct? No, ma'am. No, you did not? No, ma'am. Okay. Um, We'll get to that in just a minute then. Let's see. Um... So the only thing that you have actual documentary proof, not cash, is this one receipt that you attached to the affidavit. Is that correct? Yeah, I object to that question. That is a mischaracterization of the assertion that is in the affidavit. I'm asking. So then he can deny it. <laughs> I think he can fend for himself. Ms. Merchant. Is this the only written proof that you have of a trip she paid for? That I have? Yes. Yes, ma'am. Ashley Merchant, attorney for Mike Roman, one of Donald Trump's co-defendants in the Georgia election interference criminal case, questioning special prosecutor in the case Nathan Wade at Fulton County, Georgia Superior Court in Atlanta. Later, Fonnie Willis took the stand on her own accord and was asked about the cash reimbursement. I know he initially paid for it. Did you pay him back? 
for the cruise and for Aruba. Yeah, I gave him his money before we ever went on that trip. You gave him cash before you ever went on the trip? Mm-hmm. Okay. And so when you got cash to pay him back on these trips, would you go to the ATM? No, lady. You would not go to the ATM? No. Okay. So um, Fulton County pays you direct deposit, I assume? Yes, Fulton okay. County and the uh, state of Georgia both pay me direct deposits. Okay. So the cash that you would pay him, you wouldn't get it out of the bank? I have money in my house. You have money in your house. So it was just money that was there. When you meet my father, he's going to tell you as a woman, you should always have, which I don't have, so let's don't tell him that. You should have at least six months in cash at your house at all times. Now, I don't know why this old black man feels like that, but he does. When we were growing up, my daddy had three safes in the house. So my father's bought me a lockbox, and I always keep cash in the house. Now, I don't do it to the degree that my father would do it, so he would probably be uh, ashamed with me but I always have cash at the house. That has been, I don't know, all my life. If you're a woman and you go on a date with a man, you better have $200 in your pocket. So if that man acts up, you can go where you wanna go. So I keep cash in my house and I don't keep cash as good in my purse like I used to. Um, I don't go on many dates, but when you go on a date, you should have cash in your pocket. District Attorney in Fulton County, Georgia, Fonnie Willis at the hearing in Superior Court on her alleged misconduct. It was part of a long and sometimes tense and emotional testimony. At one point, she accused the attorney asking her the questions, Ashley Merchant, of lying. Um, did you listen to any of the arguments? I did hear the arguments this morning. It's ridiculous to me that the, you lied on Monday, and yet here we still are. And I did listen to that argument. Um, um, all right, so that was it, just the argument, no testimony. Right, I listened to the argument this morning where Adam Abadi, I thought, did an excellent job pointing out how dishonest you were with the court on Monday. And um, I'm actually surprised that the hearing continued. But since it did, here I am. Great. Um, so let's talk about, first, let's just talk about what you did in preparation for today. Um, did you meet with Mr. Wade at all? Once the, mo- once the motion was filed, did you meet with Mr. Wade and talk to him about the motion that I filed to disqualify you. On January, this first January motion? Yes. I don't know if you could say talked about. Um, I probably had some choice words about some of the things that you said that were dishonest within this motion. So I don't know that it was a conversation. As you know, Mr. Wade is a Southern gentleman. Me, not so much. Okay, but my question was, did you have a conversation with him? I didn't have a substantive conversation. You did not? I read this motion skimmed it more up so and um i've probably said some choice things to him about some of the lies they were told okay and then printed in the media because you know we used to be in a day and time where you had 60 minutes and people did stories and they verified information um and you had this great reporting but it seems today that a lawyer writes a lie and then it's printed for all of the world to see Bonnie Willis, District Attorney, Fulton County, Georgia, at today's hearing on her alleged misconduct. At another point in the testimony, she said she should not be treated like a defendant. So your office objected to us getting um, Delta records for flights that you may have taken with Mr. Wade. Well, no, no, no. I object to you getting records. You've been intrusive into people's personal lives. You're confused. You think I'm on trial. These people are on trial for trying to steal an election in 2020. I'm not on trial, no matter how hard you try to put me on trial. So my question was, 
you have any problem. I object to getting any personal records of mine. We're not dealing with privilege through a witness. And I'm not, no, 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 I'm not dealing with privilege. What um, we had offered to put them in camera for the court to review, and I just want to know if she has any That's problem. That's not something you deal with with a witness. Judge Scott McAfee and attorney Ashley Merchant and the witness, Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis. Another witness today, a friend of Fonnie Willis, Robin Yurdy, testified that the romantic relationship between Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade began in 2019, three years earlier than when Willis and Wade said they started seeing each other. You can find the full video of the hearing that will continue on Friday at our website, our video library at cspan.org. An article in USA Today reads, The hearing marks the first time a judge will examine if allegations surrounding the relationship between Willis and Nathan Wade, the private attorney she hired to oversee the case, are enough to disqualify one or both of them and potentially even to dismiss the Georgia election case altogether after three years of investigation and prosecution. This is Washington Today. The U.S. House of Representatives has passed a bill to overturn President Joe Biden's pause on approving liquefied natural gas exports. The president says the pause is to review the environmental and economic impacts of LNG exports. The House bill would remove the Department of Energy's power to approve the exports so that only the independent Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, or FERC, would have that authority. Congresswoman Kathy McMorris-Rogers, Republican of Washington State Energy and Commerce Committee Chair, spoke in favor of the bill on the House floor. President Biden's decision to impose a ban on issuing permits to export natural gas is just the latest example of his administration caving to environmental activists and putting politics over the American people. This ban will harm the American economy, jeopardize good-paying jobs, weaken our energy security, and it threatens the security of our friends and allies. America has become the number one producer and export of liquefied natural gas in the world. It has strengthened our economy, reduced costs for the American people, and enabled the United States to lead in reducing emissions more than any other nation, both here at home and abroad. LNG has been the lifeline, especially American LNG has been the lifeline, especially to our friends and allies, our European allies, since Russia invaded Ukraine. Since the invasion, American LNG has helped them reduce their natural gas prices by over 83% and reduce their dependence on Russia. President Biden's ban sends a signal to our allies that we're no longer a dependable energy partner. This is unacceptable. H.R. 7176 will immediately reverse the president's decision, allowing the U.S. to export more and encouraging domestic production here at home which will then reduce American energy supply vulnerabilities. Congresswoman Kathy McMorris-Rogers, Republican from Washington State and chair of the Energy and Commerce Committee on the House floor. Speaking in opposition to the bill, the ranking Democrat on the committee, Frank Pallone of New Jersey. This bill is nothing more than a handout to big oil and gas that will enrich our adversaries, including China, and force American families to pay the price with higher energy bills. It removes a requirement that the Department of Energy first determine liquefied natural gas exports to be in the public interest before approving export applications. And this defies logic. The Republican bill assumes that all LNG exports are automatically in the public interest. And this is utterly absurd 
absurd, considering there's widespread consensus among researchers and economists that increasing LNG exports directly leads to higher natural gas prices here at home. Americans know this reality all too well because they have felt it firsthand. Our LNG exports quadrupled over the last five years, and during that same time, in 2022, natural gas prices more than tripled. Make no mistake, if this bill ever becomes law, Americans would pay more for the gas that heats their homes and keeps their lights on. It's an affront to middle-class families who can't afford to deal with more fossil fuel price volatility. And they're tired of our energy prices being manipulated by our adversaries simply because Republicans are in a mad rush to send it all abroad. Congressman Frank Pallone, Democrat from New Jersey on the House floor. The House passed this bill by a vote of 224 to 200 with nine Democrats joining all Republicans in voting yes. President Biden has issued a statement that he strongly opposes the bill, but he did not say explicitly that he would veto it. The bill now heads to the Senate. The U.S. became the world's number one exporter of liquefied natural gas last year, going ahead of two more countries, Qatar and Australia. The IRS Commissioner Daniel Werfel told Congress today that if proposed changes to the earned income tax credit make it into law, changes that affect the 2023 tax year, which many Americans are starting to file on now, the IRS will be able to handle that. The commissioner testified before the House Ways and Means Committee. The chair is Congressman Jason Smith, Republican from Missouri. The overwhelming majority of American taxpayers are guaranteed to have no adjustment to their tax liability due to the child tax credit changes in this bill. In fact, can you confirm that only roughly 10% of households will be effective and will receive just modest adjustments to their tax refunds? Yes, in fact, in looking at the numbers, if you look at the same uh, eligible population uh, in fiscal year 22, it was about 22 and a half million people. So that, that metric that you offered is in line with our understanding of how it's going to impact taxpayers going forward. Thank you. We worked with your team to make sure the bill did not place a new burden on taxpayers and can be implemented without delay. Can you confirm that taxpayers do not need to file amended returns to obtain the adjustments the bill makes, further speeding things up? Yes. Thank you. There is language in the legislation requiring the IRS to process any additional returns without delay. As a matter of fact, that was language we added during the markup in this room. If the bill is passed by the Senate and signed into law, how quickly will you be able to make the child tax credit adjustments for this filing season? In other words, how long will it take after bill signage for the IRS to send out any additional refunds? Well, we gave you a range of six to 12 weeks uh, required for implementation from the point of enactment. The reason we give a range is because we uh, need to see the final language, but I'm committed to work diligently to make sure we're closer to the six week end of that range than the 12 week. I I appreciate hearing that, Commissioner. Um, So just to be clear, we have your commitment um, that the IRS will move as quickly as possible. It will be be a, a top priority to make sure that this gets done. Thank you, sir. Congressman Jason Smith, Republican from Missouri, the Ways and Means Committee chair, questioning the IRS Commissioner Daniel Werfel at today's hearing. The earned income tax credit changes are part of a $78 billion 
tax bill that also includes a restoration of business tax deductions. It passed the House and is pending in the Senate. A CNBC article says that if enacted, the child tax credit changes could expand access, increase the refundable portion of the tax break, and add future inflation adjustments. Eligible families stand to receive an average tax cut of $680 for 2023, according to estimates from the Urban Brooks Tax Policy Center. The U.S. House defeated another proposal this week to double the cap on the state and local tax or SALT deduction. A vote on a resolution setting up the rules for debate on that bill failed on Wednesday by 195 yeses to 225 noes, 18 Republicans voting no, along with many Democrats. The underlying bill was promoted by another group of Republicans from high-tax states, including New York, New Jersey, California, and Maryland. Mike Lawler of New York was the sponsor and spoke on the floor. In a time when middle-class families are increasingly squeezed by the rising cost of living, providing real tax relief is imperative. That is why I introduced the SALT Marriage Penalty Elimination Act, which is designed to correct an inequity that has burdened married couples across New York and the United States since 2017. The current tax code unfairly caps state and local tax deductions, otherwise known as SALT, at $10,000 for married couples filing jointly, essentially penalizing them for their marital status and depriving them of the full $20,000 deduction they would rightly deserve. This arbitrary threshold does not reflect the economic realities faced by dual-income households, especially in high-cost areas like New York's 17th District. It's an issue that transcends tax policy. It's about fairness and supporting the backbone of our communities, our families. The implications of the SALT cap are significant. Since its implementation, we've witnessed a dramatic decline in taxpayers claiming the SALT deduction, a drop from nearly 50% in my district to 19, or nationwide from 31% to 9. This stark decrease has disproportionately impacted high-cost states like New York, where the cost of living far exceeds the national average. In my district alone, the percentage of filers itemizing taxes have halved since the CAP's introduction, underscoring the urgent need for reform. The SALT Marriage Penalty Elimination Act, my first bill introduced in the House, seeks to address this issue head-on by eliminating the marriage penalty and reinstating a fair deduction limit. Congressman Mike Lawler, Republican from New York, on the House floor on Wednesday. Congresswoman Teresa Ledger-Fernandez, Democrat from New Mexico, spent her debate time pointing out that the SALT deduction was capped during the Donald Trump administration and that there are more pressing matters, in her view, that the House should be working on. They created this problem that they now want to put a Band-Aid on. They capped the SALT deduction in their tax bill to give tax breaks to the wealthiest corporations and CEOs. As we know, Republicans and Trump seem to care more about the richest Americans. There are real emergencies that all Americans want this Congress to address. The federal government could shut down in just two weeks. An absolute disaster that these bills don't even mention. That should be our priority. Yet we have another week of chaos and dysfunction of dealing with things that are not priorities for the American people. It's another week 
that Republicans allow small sections of their party to dictate what we see on the floor based on their re-election priorities. It's another week that extreme MAGA Republicans push partisan political stunts. Congresswoman Teresa Ledger-Fernandez, a Democrat from New Mexico, on the House floor on Wednesday. Again, the debate was on a resolution that would set up debate on the bill dealing with the SALT deduction, and that resolution failed. The vote was 195 to 225. On Wall Street today, the Dow up 348, Nasdaq up 47, S&P up 29. Story from Reuters, hotter than expected inflation in January shows that the United States' path back to 2% inflation may be a bumpy one. The Fed vice chair for supervision, Michael Barr, said on Wednesday, adding it was too early to be assured price stability will be restored without a significant blow to jobs or economic growth. He said the Fed is facing a difficult decision on how to, how long to maintain the target rate of interest at the current five and a quarter to five and a half percent range. That was from Reuters. The vice chair spoke at the National Association for Business Economics Conference in Washington. The road down to two percent is likely to be bumpy. Uh, that's something that uh, I expected before. It's something I still expect. Something that the January data. I think helps confirm. It's one of the reasons why I think it's important for us to be careful and cautious as we begin to think about what the right appropriate time is uh, to begin to reduce the federal funds rate. Uh, So I think that that careful approach is is quite useful. Uh, You know, I also think it's important to have, you know, a long historical perspective on this question. If you go back and look at all the different historical episodes it's very hard to find an example that is exactly like the one we're in where things turned out well. Uh, so, you know, we have to be careful for that reason on both sides. We want to make sure that uh, we don't cut prematurely and, you know, don't see a confident glide down to, even if it's a bumpy glide, down to 2%. And we don't want to wait too long and uh, end up, uh, causing cracks in the labor market uh, that none of us want to see. So right now we're in a very good place. Uh, as I said, the healing of the economy means that we've been able to really bring inflation down markedly while still having a strong labor market, which is reflected in the January report, a healthy overall economy. But our risks on both sides of that are, are there, and we, we are really, really very conscious of that. The Federal Reserve Vice Chair for Supervision, Michael Barr, at the National Association for Business Economics Conference in Washington on Wednesday. The next Federal Reserve meeting, when they would make a decision about interest rates, is March 19th and 20th. Story from Associated Press, last fall's contentious United Auto Workers strike changed Ford's relationship with the union to the point where it will think carefully about where it builds future vehicles, Ford's top executive said Thursday. CEO Jim Farley told the Wolf Research Global Auto Conference in New York that the company always took pride in its relationship with UAW, having avoided strikes since the 1970s. But last year, Ford's highly profitable factory in Louisville, Kentucky, was the first truck plant that the UAW shut down with a strike. Reporting from Associated Press. Washington Today continues in a moment. Hi, this is Rachel from C-SPAN's podcast team. I'd like to introduce you to one of the producers here at C-SPAN, my colleague, Sean. 
Thanks, Rachel. If you're a fan of Washington Today, we think you'll also like our evening newsletter, Word for Word, which brings you a recap of the day's most important political and policy events delivered right to your inbox. Read about what happened on Capitol Hill and at the White House and watch video highlights featuring the day's newsmakers. Hear them word for word. Join our community of informed listeners and viewers. Head over to cspan.org slash connect and subscribe to Word for Word today. Thanks for listening and staying connected with Word for Word. Subscribe now at cspan.org slash connect. Thank you. Welcome back to Washington Today, available as a podcast on the C-SPAN Now mobile app, which is free and wherever you find your podcasts. From the Wall Street Journal, the Biden administration on Thursday said Russia is pursuing an anti-satellite capability that represents a serious concern but doesn't present an active threat to American safety, officials said after declassifying intelligence at the behest of a member of Congress. The system is still in development, said John Kirby, a spokesman for the National Security Council. There is no immediate threat to anyone's safety, he told reporters Thursday. It is not an active capability, and it has not yet been deployed. The intelligence the White House declassified was limited, and John Kirby didn't confirm if there is any nuclear component to the Russian anti-satellite device. President Biden has been briefed on the developing capability, for many weeks, Kirby said. Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, was providing information Thursday to top members of Congress who have oversight of intelligence matters. That was from the Wall Street Journal. The reference to the member of Congress who pushed the issue was Mike Turner, Republican of Ohio, chair of the House Intelligence Committee. Here's John Kirby at the White House briefing. Uh, I know that Chairman Turner's letter to House members And his subsequent post on social media about a national security threat has prompted a lot of questions. While I am limited by how much I can share about the specific nature of the threat, I can confirm that it is related to an anti-satellite capability that Russia is developing. I want to be clear about a couple of things right off the bat. First, this is not an active capability that's been deployed. And though Russia's pursuit of this particular capability is troubling, There is no immediate threat to anyone's safety. We are not talking about a weapon that can be used to attack human beings or cause physical destruction here on Earth. That said, we've been closely monitoring this Russian activity and we will continue to take it very seriously. President Biden has been kept fully informed and regularly informed by his national security team, including today. He has directed a series of initial actions, including additional briefings to congressional leaders, direct diplomatic engagement with Russia, with our allies and our partners as well, and with other countries around the world who have interests at stake. The intelligence community has serious concerns about a a broad declassification of this intelligence. They also assess that starting with private engagement rather than immediately publicizing the intelligence could be a much more effective approach. We agree with that which is consistent, of course, with the manner in which we have conducted downgrades of information in the past. This administration has put a lot of focus on doing that in a strategic way, a deliberate way, and in particular when it comes to Russia. And there's two things that we always do first when we consider about downgrades. One, we work with the intelligence community to conduct a thorough scrub of that intelligence to make sure that we are protecting sources and methods. And two, We sequence our private diplomacy with our public disclosure to ensure the maximum effect. In keeping with that approach, our National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, is meeting this afternoon with House leadership and committee chairs and rankers this afternoon to brief them on the latest intelligence and our analysis of it. And we will brief the Senate 
when they are back in session on the 25th of February. I'm not going to get ahead of those discussions. As I said, we make decisions about how and when to publicly disclose intelligence in a careful, deliberate, and strategic way, in a way that we choose. We're not going to be knocked off that process regardless of what, in this particular case, has found its way into the public domain. I can assure you that we will continue to keep members of Congress, as well as our international partners, and all of you and the American people as fully informed as possible. Nothing is more important to President Biden than the safety and security of the American people. That's his top priority, and it's going to remain front and center as we conti continue to determine the best next steps. John Kirby, White House National Security Communications Advisor, part of his opening statement at today's briefing. Reporters did ask him about reports that this anti-satellite capability is nuclear-capable or to be considered a nuclear weapon. John Kirby refusing to answer. A story from the Huffington Post, Congressman Andy Ogles, Republican of Tennessee, wants consequences for his Republican colleague who raised alarms Wednesday about a mysterious national security threat. Congressman Mike Turner, Republican of Ohio, chair of the Intelligence Committee, called on President Joe Biden to declassify information about the danger, offering no details and prompting House Speaker Mike Johnson to tell reporters there was no need for public alarm. In a letter to Johnson shared Thursday, Ogles asked for an inquiry into the revelation, saying it was done with reckless disregard for consequences to geopolitics, markets, and the well-being and psyche of the American people. Ogles also questioned whether Turner should remain chair of the Intelligence Committee. The article from HuffPost also notes Ogles, a far-right Republican who's a part of the right-wing House Freedom Caucus, said in his letter that Turner only dis disclosed the existence of the threat in order to boost support for Ukraine funding and a reauthorization of government spy powers. Former President Donald Trump, a 2024 Republican presidential candidate, reiterated today his comments from last weekend at a rally about the U.S. not defending against Russian aggression. If a NATO country has not spent at least 2% of their gross domestic product on defense, that's the commitment that NATO countries make. President Trump spoke outside the courthouse in New York City, where he was attending a trial on one of his cases. Now, somebody asked a question about NATO before. All I can say is this. NATO countries have to pay up. They have to pay their bills. The United States is in for $200 billion, and they're in for $25 billion. The economy, as you know, their economy, when you add them up, add up the countries uh, that make up NATO, it's about the same size as our economy. So we're in for 200 billion, they're in for 25 billion, and it's much more important to them because we have an ocean in between. It's a much more, much different thing. So the NATO countries have to pay up. They're not paying up, they're not paying what they should, and they laugh at the stupidity of the United States of America, where we have a guy that gives $60 billion every time somebody comes and asks for it. We shouldn't be doing that. They're laughing at us. They think we're the stupid country because of our leadership. Former President Trump today in New York City. The NATO Secretary General Jan Stoltenberg was asked about Donald Trump's comments at a news conference at NATO headquarters in Brussels, Belgium, ahead of a NATO ministers meeting. Jonathan Beale from BBC. I, I just want to take you back to Donald Trump's comments at the weekend. You've already issued a statement saying that they un undermined all NATO security and put soldiers at risk. Can you just explain what you meant by that? And would you go as far as President Biden, who said Donald Trump's remarks were dumb and dangerous? And separately on the spending, 
You, you've highlighted increase, increases in NATO spending today with an expectation that 18 countries will meet the 2% target. What would you say has been the main motivator of that? Is it threats from Donald Trump or is it threats from Vladimir Putin? Thank you. NATO has been able to prevent a military attack against any NATO ally for 75 years. And we have done that because it has been absolutely clearly communicated from all NATO allies at any time that we are there to protect all allies. Um, and uh, the whole idea of NATO is that an attack on one ally will trigger the response from the whole alliance. And, along, and as long as we stand behind that message together, uh, we prevent any military attack on uh, any ally. So the purpose of NATO is to prevent war, is to preserve peace, is to prevent an attack on NATO allies. And we have done so successfully for decades uh, because our deterrence is credible. So any suggestion that we are not standing up for each other, that we are not going to protect each other, that does undermine the security of all of us, increasing the risks, and therefore it is so important that we both in actions but also in words communicate clearly that uh, we stand by NATO's commitment to protect and defend uh, all uh, allies. Um, the good news is that that's exactly what NATO allies are doing. Uh, NATO has the capabilities, we have the resolve to protect and defend all allies. And that's also the reason why we don't see any imminent threat against any NATO ally. Uh, because uh, 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 we have uh, since uh, 2014 significantly uh, enforced our collective defense. Uh, we have uh, the strongest uh, reinforcement of our uh, collective defense uh, in decades. And that was, of course, triggered by uh, President Putin's illegal annexation of uh, Crimea. But it was a decision by NATO allies back in 2014 that since the world has changed, since, 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 since the world uh, became more dangerous, it was necessary for NATO to respond. And that's exactly what we have done. Uh, and uh, with more defence spending, record high defence investments across uh, the Alliance, with more uh, forces deployed in the eastern part of the Alliance, with higher readiness of our forces, with heavy investments in new modern capabilities, all of that together uh, is, has strengthened NATO. And uh, as long as we continue to invest, as long as we continue to adapt NATO, we will continue to ensure that no uh, NATO ally uh, is attacked. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg at NATO headquarters in Brussels, Belgium, holding a news conference before the NATO defense ministers meeting. From Associated Press, President Vladimir Putin said that Russia would prefer to see U.S. President Joe Biden win a second term, describing him as more experienced and predictable than Donald Trump, even though Moscow strongly disagrees with the current administration's policies. Putin's comments during an interview with Russian state television Wednesday were his first about the upcoming U.S. presidential election, likely to pit Biden against Trump. They were a rare praise for Biden, a fierce critic of the Russian leader who has frequently lauded Trump. And a quote from Vladimir Putin when asked which candidate he'd prefer. Biden, he's more experienced, more predictable. He's a politician of the old formation. But we will work with any U.S. leader whom the American people trust. From the national English language newspaper out of United Arab Emirates, congressional leaders on Thursday accused Zalmay Khalilzad, the former U.S. Special Representative for Afghanistan Reconciliation, of being at the center of a naive approach to the Taliban in the run-up to the withdrawal from America's longest war. 
at a Republican-led House Representatives Foreign Affairs Committee hearing meant to further scrutinize President Joe Biden and his administration for the 2021 withdrawal from Afghanistan, Mr. Khalilzad's tenure as lead Taliban negotiator under former President Donald Trump also faced criticism. That was the reporting from The National. Here is some of today's hearing covered by C-SPAN. Questions from Congresswoman Young Kim, Republican of California. The Taliban was often cited as stating to the United States, you might have the watches, but we have the time. Right. Was the Taliban waiting the United States government out so it could overthrow the Afghan government after our departure? Well, I'd be speculating, but certainly they waited us out uh, in the sense that uh, based on what happened based on changes in the world, based on successes that we had on ter- counterterrorism, uh, as I've described, we decided uh, that it's time to come home. And uh, uh, there are things we could have done differently in retrospect. Those studies will be done that would have uh, perhaps had a different outcome in terms of the Taliban. One issue as ambassador. You, ambassador, did yeah, you consider so. that as a possibility if power sharing agreement was implemented? I, I certainly consider it as a possibility because both sides were saying they want that. And the question was uh, the terms. Uh, the president of Afghanistan, President Ghani, did not want to leave office. Uh, he wanted the Talibs to join them. They said, no, they won't join. There has to be a new government uh, that uh, be formed with a head that's acceptable to both sides. So the, the negotiations... Uh, were difficult. Uh, there was, uh, we knew it was going to take time. You know, the, the, the war had you been going think, on there uh, for 40 years. The President years. Biden's unconditional withdrawal legitimized the Taliban's plan of action. No, our withdrawal, uh, of course, um, uh, changed the balance in favor of the Taliban. Um, but I believe that the bigger mistake uh, or the bigger factor that. Uh, uh, that shaped uh, uh, the outcome was the poor performance of the government, uh, of the Afghan government, uh, running away uh, while saying that they, this will, they will never do that, the disintegration of the armed forces. Those were the bigger factors, uh, in my judgment, in terms of what ultimately happened. Zalmay Khalilzad, who served as U.S. Special Representative for Afghanistan Reconciliation under former President Trump and many years ago was U.S. Ambassador to Afghanistan, testifying today before the House Foreign Affairs Committee. The questions from Congresswoman Young Kim, Republican from California, looking at the Doha Agreement signed between the U.S. and the Taliban in 2020, in which the Taliban agreed not to attack the U.S. or its allies, and the U.S. would withdraw its forces by summer 2021. And a note about campaign 2024 on Washington Today. Senator Joe Manchin, Democrat of West Virginia, was at the City Club of Cleveland, part of what he calls his listening tour, which an article from NBC News writes has fueled speculation that Manchin might mount an independent or third-party campaign for president, and he's been linked to the No Labels organization's effort to field a bipartisan ticket. Here's a bit of the Q&A to him. A lot of conversation about whether or not you are, in fact, exploring a third-party run for the White House. I yeah. want to invite you to, to, yeah, to what, take, what, take Dan, that Dan, what I've seen is the system is broken. How do you fix it? I've come to the conclusion you can't fix it in Washington. My daughter came to me about a year ago, and she's 
been able to spend more time with her than I have since uh, she was in, still coming out of high school before she went to college. But I've enjoyed it. And she, she started digging into it. She said, do you know how the system works and what's going on? So I started putting two and two together that we're not going to change it there because the power is all within four, what we call four corners, which is the majority uh, leader and the minority leader in the Senate mm-hmm. and the speaker and the minority leader in the House. And that's where all the, par- all the power has been cohesed around them. And they have it. And they're able to control it, and they control the money. So uh, the president, I will say this, President Biden, uh, which I've known for a long time, I voted for him and support him, is not the person I thought he was. And I've said this. How did he get so far to the left? I, I just can't figure it out. And I've told him this. We've had this discussion. So I'm not saying something new to you that he's not heard from me directly. And I said, Mr. President, I said, I swear to God that this is not where the country is. The country elected you because you were the one Democrat that could pull things back together. We were getting so divided. And then as soon as you got here, you got pulled clear to the left. And a lot of the people you have in positions are very far left. And I says it's very tough to deal with them. Senator Joe Manchin, Democrat from West Virginia at the City Club of Cleveland. He was also asked, hypothetically, if you were to run for president, who would be your running mate? So hypothetically, if I was picking my running mate, I, I would ask, uh, new, I would ask really who I would ask right now is Mitt Romney, maybe Rob Portman. Yeah. Okay. Rob Portman would be right there, too. Rob's a dear friend of mine. What a, what a good man. What a good man. Senator Joe Manchin at the City Club of Cleveland referring to Senator Mitt Romney, Republican of Utah, who is retiring from the Senate this year, and former Senator of Ohio, Republican Rob Portman. Thanks for listening to Washington Today. Sign up for C-SPAN's evening newsletter word for word. It's free and get the stories making headlines in Washington sent to your inbox every day. Subscribe at cspan.org slash connect. Have a good night.